Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's coming up to that time of year uh, where 3CR calls upon audiences from across the world, indeed across the nation, across the state, but definitely across the world, to keep ourselves going. Um, and you'll be hearing announcements through this program to let you know how you can contribute, you personally, you, a powerful person listening to this program, can contribute to free and open voices, not fake news or not stupidity like that, community voices. You can contribute by contributing to three community radio here in little old Melbourne, the biggest city at the end of the earth. That's right. Smith Street, actually. That's where we should be, but we're not because we're still in covidness times. So we're recording from our remote locations, as you can probably hear from the quality of the audio. But before we go any further, yes, yes, you can contribute to 3CR, but what on earth are you listening to? If you've tuned into this radio station for the first time at around about 12 noon on a Saturday, then you're going, what's this? What's this dogs program? D-O-G-S. We are the defenders of government schools. And you go, what? Why do government schools need defending? Um, the answer is, for the last 35 years, government schools have been under attack. And before, but for the last 35 years, we've been here on the radio defending them because they need to be. Not just here in Australia, but government schools around the world. And because one of the greatest forces, one of the greatest forces in history, does not want us to be educated in a free, secular and universal way. One of the greatest forces that does not wish this to happen are the forces, believe it or not, of organised religion. And so therefore this show has to really analyse the issues of the separation of religion from the state. Which of course doesn't mean that we're anti-religious. In fact, many people who are members of the dogs organisation are deeply religious people. Not just spiritual, but deeply religious people. But they are religious people who believe that the domain of God is very important to them and should remain separate from the domain of man. Um, separation of religion from the government, from the state. And at the moment, around the world, we're seeing the consequences of when that doesn't happen. And we'll be reporting on that, particularly in a little place called America, which, as this program goes to air, is starting to become a question in terms of is it a functioning country. It's become quite disturbing very, very quickly. But before we get to all of that, let's get back to our core business, which is the defence of government schools. And to defend government schools, we have a very powerful weapon. The powerful weapon we have to defend government schools is not just your contributions to 3CR, no. It's not just the will of the people, no. It's a very specific targeted weapon. And the weapon we are going to introduce you to now is Gene's press release, number 844. Press release number 844 is a powerful set of ideas, which if you hear it, you will remain not unchanged. So before we go any further into our dogs program, as is our tradition, I would like to introduce Jean Ely, Dr. Jean Ely, LLB, um, who will tell us what on earth this incredibly dangerous weapon is contained within her press release, number 844. So go up, 
Gene, off you go with your press release and dominate. <laughs> no, come on, I don't like the dominate. That, that sounds a little bit like Mr. Trump. <laughs> Here is the press release, all which you'll find on www.adogs.info. The private school business plans in time of plague. Australia is officially in a recession, not just in a plague time, but in a recession, an economic recession, according to the Federal Treasurer, Frydenberg. And the business plan of some private schools and their aspirational patrons is in freefall. Their fees have been rising and rising, even though taxpayer funding has been rising and rising as well for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. 36% of Victorian students at the moment attend a non-government school, the second highest rate next to the ACT in the country. I'll read that again. 36% of Victorian students are not in public schools but are in private schools and that 36% is the second highest in the country next to the ACT. And this leaves Victorians very sensitive to price rises that have exceeded inflation for more than a decade in the fee rises in these private schools. I have a very vivid memory of a, back in the 90s, of a, a, a federal minister for education, Mr Kemp, telling the taxpayers of Australia that they had to pay a lot more money to private schools so that their fees could be uh, kept at a certain level. But we paid a lot more money and the fees kept going up and they have been well, well more than the CPI for a long time. Last calendar year alone, education costs grew by 2.9% last calendar year, compared to a 1.8% rise in inflation. And it's been like that for a long time. And there's, in, if you go to our website, you will see uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, table, which indicates that this is the case. Now, in dollar terms, schools like Scotch College and Geelong Grammar now charge fees of more than 40000 a year. But fees are going to be frozen by these schools because a lot of parents have lost their job and they can't pay the fees. Many school budgets have already come under pressure and the parents are seeking fee discounts and deferrals of payment. But there's a silver lining to all of this. Australia does not yet wholly depend upon a private sectarian system for the education of all our children, even though there's 36% of Victorian parents who have been silly enough to get into this uh, marketisation of education. There is still, in spite of all of the, uh, the attacks upon it in this state, a public system which is free 
secular and universal, that's available to all of those insecure, now jobless parents who believe that they could buy privileges and the pathway to heaven and a good job for their children. And this public system does not depend upon the vagaries of the market for its survival. It depends upon our taxes and the goodwill of the citizens of this country. So that is uh, the press release, but um, Robert is going to uh, fill out a lot more information for you there. But before I go, I'd like to read you a letter that a gentleman called David Zingia, who's the Associate Professor at the Southern Cross University, wrote to The Age when a report on on these fees uh, and the problems of private schools came into The Age. David wrote this. If private schools have to close, they have no one to blame but themselves. High-fee schools such as Scotch College have participated in what has been termed the building war for more than a decade offsetting public funding of more than $3,000 a student with parental fees to promote their perceived exclusivity and privilege. Lower-fee private schools are majority public funded, with more than 90% of their recurrent costs covered by the public. If they were forced to close, this would be a cost saving to the public as they could be converted to public schools open to all students. Given that there's no academic benefit for students going to private schools, one has to ask how parents have been hoodwinked into thinking that private equals better. So thank you to David Zinia for that letter. And that's all I have to say, Robert. Over to you. Okay, thank you very much, Jean. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast all over the WWs. Um, you can actually get us at, our, at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au as well. And I do suggest in the week to come you go to the 3CR website because normally at this time of year we would be having what is called a radiothon, which is a week of fundraising which keeps the entire station going pretty much for the year. One week of the year where people are asked to give money to us, not just me, by the way, so if you don't like me, that's fine. You might like Jean, give it to her. No, don't give it to either of us. Give it to the station. Give it to the community. Give it back to the community so that this radio station can stay on air. You'll be getting a lot more details about how to do this um, through the program, starting, I think, around about now. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. 
artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence, but you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. Well, welcome back to the DOGS program. We are the defenders of government schools. Now, what Janine's saying is actually rather interesting um, because business models for high-fee-paying private schools during a recession will have to adjust. Now, traditionally, private schools have said over the last 20 years, we cannot possibly reduce our fees because if we reduce our fees, it will be cheaper for our parents. And if it's cheaper for our parents, then the product we're giving them must be worth less because that's the free market. Something is worth less in terms of money. It's worth less in terms of product. And so, therefore, private schools, for the last, or ever since Howard put in the SES model and before that as well, I said, oh, no, no, we can't reduce our fees in any way. We have to increase them because the more money we charge, the better the product must be. And certainly the perception of the quality of the product will improve if it costs more. And we do know that perception is very important to the aspirational middle classes of Australia when it comes to education. Until you get a recession. When you get a recession, a whole bunch of parents who are deeply aspirational will look for ways for their aspiration to be fulfilled without spending any money, which is to say, um, send them to a good state school. Well, what's the definition of a good state school? The definition of a good state school is a state school with lots of parents with enough money and enough time and enough energy to participate in the school's community, support teachers, support the principal, support the children, and create a true community value which includes academic excellence. That's what a good school is. A good school is a state school. It also, in terms of being a state school, has the benefit of having values, the values of being universal and open to all and all about equity and inclusivity. Got a wheelchair? No trouble at a state school. It is our values that you are welcome at this school and will be treated equitably. Now, there are some parents, I would have to say, that would argue that they don't want their child to be next to a child in a wheelchair because a child in a wheelchair will hamper their child's um, academic uh, possibilities. Well, they will send their child to a private school, but what if there's a recession? And they do not have the money anymore. And I think that's what Jean is hinting at. I also think it's worth noting that this recession has been brought on by a plague, COVID-19. And one of the big debates in Australia today is whether schools should return to their full function as schools for children to be packed into classrooms of up to 30 in a space which is nine metres by eight metres with chairs and tables and desks and computers all crammed in there together. Um, Should indeed schools be forced to go back? And the answer um, in some states is yes, 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 they should. Except that's always a qualified answer in the Australian educational landscape. Because when you say yes, 
schools are going back, do we mean Geelong Grammar? No. Now, I often talk about Geelong Grammar because Geelong Grammar is typical. Geelong Grammar is a school that charges $40,000 per year per student to educate a child. That is, if you can get on their waiting list. It's not just turn up at the door with a cashola and in you go. No, there's a waiting list at Geelong Grammar. Now, Geelong Grammar has decided that in the middle of a plague, they're not going to reopen their school. They're going to use all the technological um, devices they have at their disposal to engage in remote learning. And they're going to do that till the end of July. 31st of July is where they're saying they're going to do it. They might do it longer. They reserve the right. Do they have to go back? Can they be forced to go back by the government? No. Are they funded by the government? Yes, they most certainly are, to the tune of $6.5 million a year. So you just worked that out over a period of five years. Well, that's a great deal of money, isn't it? Yes, indeed. $30 million gets pumped into one school over five years, and they say, oh, no, no, we're not going to teach any kids because we are Geelong Grammar. We teach the children... I won't even say the elites. We teach the children the great and the good. We teach the future leaders of this country, and we don't want them to be in danger. But apparently um, the children um, that that go to state schools are of a different quality, and they can can go back because the government says so. So this whole idea of any sense of equity being played out between the state system and indeed the private system of any sort is just a furphy. The government can't control the private system, even though they fund them. Now, Gene has quite rightly said, well, there is a way to solve the problem if the government really wants to make sure that everyone goes back to school and is put together in the middle of a plague, especially the children, um, well, then they can just take them over. I actually think, and just for once, we, the people of Australia, that is, we the people in, the, in that American sense, should say no. No, we don't want to send our children back to school. Thank you very much. I think Geelong Grammar's got a point. Why don't we resource all the children so they can be taught remotely? Mm. Yes, I think that's what we'll do. That's what we, the people, will do to protect our children and their grandparents because they come home, of course, in the middle of a plague from school. So I put that to you. But in Australia, this is a problem that's playing out between the school systems. In other countries around the world, which are doing far worse than us, it's not just a question of, well, you know, maybe some people will die. In some countries, it's a question of how many thousand people will die if you send the children back to school. One of those countries where tens of thousands of people have been struck down by plague, unnecessarily because of the vagaries of their government. One of those countries is the United Kingdom. And in the United Kingdom, they're being told to send their children back to school. But that ain't necessarily what's happening. And I think what we'll do now is we'll, again, throw some more messages, because I think that's probably an appropriate thing to do, because we are in the middle of this strange, not radio week. But we would like to encourage you, um, I would like to encourage you, we would like to encourage you to consider donating to Three Community Radio. to keep this program and the program you were listening to before and the program you'll be listening to after this um, on the air because this doesn't happen by accident. This happens by the sacrifice, the sacrifice of you, the listeners. We'll be back with more dogs talking about the United Kingdom um, with the dulcet tones of Dale 
after this. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June station appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people. The length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago, this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism... Capitalism, imperialism, is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to the dogs program. Just before we went to the break, Robert mentioned that other countries are having similar issues about going back to school that we do in Australia. And I've got an article here from The Guardian written by Josh Halliday and Sally Wheel uh, entitled Thousands of Primary Schools in England Snub Call to Restart Classes. Exclusive. Wales announces late June opening as Union Poll finds two in five English schools yet to reopen to more pupils. The government's desperate push to reopen primary schools in England to kickstart the economy has fallen flat, with up to 90% in some areas remaining closed to more pupils amid rising fears about the spread of coronavirus. Figures obtained by The Guardian show that in large parts of the northeast, not a single primary school opened to more pupils on Monday, the government's target date for reopening after the 10-week lockdown. Data from 11 of the 12 biggest local authorities in the region, which has the highest COVID-19 infection rate in the UK, showed that just 12% of their 856 primary schools admitted additional pupils on Monday. Across England, a National Education Union poll of members suggested more than two in five schools, 44%, decided against admitting more pupils on Monday, contrary to government expectations. In the northwest, the proportion of schools opening to more pupils was even lower, at just 8%, according to a survey by the country's biggest education union. 
The figures will be a blow to Boris Johnson, who has made the reopening of primary schools central to his plan to ease lockdown, requiring pupils in nursery, reception, year one and year six to return to school from the 1st of June, despite warnings from independent scientists that it might be too soon, while transmission and infection rates remain high. Labor accused the government of a complete failure of leadership. Parents are understandably concerned about the question whether they should send their children back to school or not, the Shadow Education Secretary Rebecca Long-Bailey said. This data only confirms that the Prime Minister has not assured parents, school staff or pupils about their safety. Schools must feel equipped to open when it is safe to do so, and the government has a duty to address their valid safety concerns. Most schools in England have remained open to small numbers of key workers' students, children, sorry, and vulnerable pupils, pupils, yet there remained widespread concerns about admitting further pupils safely. The North East has the highest per capita infection rate of any region in the UK and is thought to be particularly vulnerable given, given its relatively high proportion of people with secondary illnesses linked to heavy industry, such as mining and shipbuilding. Of the 10 worst affected local authorities, the top four are all in the North East, Sunderland, Gateshead, South Tyneside and Middlesbrough. Data released by the Office for National Statistics on Tuesday showed that the North East had suffered 41% more deaths than its five-year average since the crisis began, a far higher figure than other regions such as Wales, 13%, and London at 24%. In County Durham, Gateshead and Hartlepool, not a single primary school out of 309 reopened to more pupils reflecting continuing concern among the head teachers about the safety of opening up to more pupils. In Newcastle, officials said only two of its 73 primary schools might be able to admit more pupils before next week. The opening figures for primary schools in England emerged as the Welsh Government said schools there would reopen at the end of June, almost a month after the planned phased return began in England. The Welsh Education Minister, Kirsty Williams, said schools would reopen on the 29th of June and the summer term would be extended by a week to the 27th of July, with plans for an additional week off at half term in the next academic year. Further education colleges would reopen from the 15th of June for face-to-face -face learning, especially for vulnerable students and those working towards a licence to practice assessments. She said. The NEU, which has more than 450,000 members, has consistently argued for a later reopening date, when the numbers of new infections will be lower and the system of testing, tracking and isolation of new cases will have bedded in. Kevin Courtney, the NEU's Joint General Secretary, said the figures were a wake-up call for the government. He said many schools intended a to delay a wider reopening and that some would not be able to, to admit all suggested year groups. A number would not take in any further pupils this term beyond the children of key workers and vulnerable ch children already attending, he added. 
It was always reckless of Boris Johnson to set an arbitrary date and expect schools to fall in line, he said. Heads and their staff know far more about their individual challenges than Whitehall ever will. As the regional variation according to coronavirus levels show, schools are listening to the science rather than politicians. Not only is the safety of the government's plan in question, but also the feasibility of it and confidence of head teachers in what the Prime Minister has requested. The Department of Education has yet to publish any data on pupils returning to school opening more widely, but ministers anticipate numbers will rise in the coming days and weeks. A DfE spokesperson said, from this week, many schools have begun welcoming children from reception year one and year six back to the classroom as a part of a phased and cautious approach. To prepare for this, Head teachers and school staff have been doing an excellent job, including putting protective measures in place and engaging with parents and children. We will continue to support schools who haven't yet been able to open more widely to do so as soon as possible. More than 23,000 NEU members took part in the survey and one representative from each school was used in the final weighting. In total, just under 11,000 schools were covered by the sample, equating to 63% of nursery and primary schools in England. And that's the end of that article. Thanks very much, Doug. Um, yeah, uh, I think the answer to the question that that article is the answer to the question, are teachers stupid? And I think the answer is no. Um, Boris Johnson or any any elected official setting an arbitrary date and saying, oh, we're going to open on this date. And, everyone, and someone says, well, why that date? He said, well, because I said so. You can realise that because I said so is not only bad logic, but it's not going to go very well on a test in a primary school. You know, 7 plus 10 equals 300 because I said so <laughs> is a fail. We're going to open all the schools on this date because I said so is a fail, and the teachers of the United Kingdom have marked him down accordingly. <laughs> and we'll be returning, not just with what's going on in the UK, but now what's going on in the US. And when I return, we'll be talking not about education specifically. We'll be talking about something much more dangerous, something that's got a lot of people killed over, over time in history, talking about the separation of religion from the state. And the current leader in the United States is aggressively blurring the lines. And not only are the people of America pushing back against this, but many religious leaders in the United States are pushing back against this because they are students of history. Something that I suggest that the current president of the United States um, is less so. I don't know what marks he got in history class, but I suggest to you that if you mix up God and the cult of personality in a democracy, you're bound to get some pretty poor outcomes. And then I'm going to tie that back into what on earth is going on in schools in the United States, where not just tens, not just hundreds, not just thousands, not just tens of thousands, but over 100,000 people have passed away. Um, not, strangely enough, to police brutality, 
but indeed to something much more important at the moment, which is the coronavirus, which is sweeping their nation and in no way, no way being diminished. Um, before we introduce, I thought, I thought we might just have a little bit of poignant music before we get into what's going on um, in the United States of America. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Father, 
Strange Fruit. Strange Fruit, of course, being the bodies of young black men hung from trees by Christian cult members from the Ku Klux Klan and other related people back in the first half of the 20th century when America had segregation and violence against black men um, was pretty much unchallenged, not just with the police force, but with society in general. Now, I'm using a calm voice because that song makes me angry, actually, and there's a lot of people in America that are very angry about basically the same issue. And in the middle of this, in the middle of this, the President of the United States decided he'd go for a walk. Now, this walk was not just any walk. It was a walk from his home, the White House, to a church, where he stood outside the church with the Bible raised in his hand um, didn't say anything, and then walked back upside home. Upside down. The Bible was upside down. Well, I, I don't know if it was upside down, Jean. Um, I, I don't really think that was the point from his point of view. The point was to be seen. The consequences of the work were immediate because to have that walk, peaceful protesters had to be cleared out of his way. And they were cleared out of his way using tear gas and pepper bullets and other aggressive forms of crowd control. The people of America who were gathered outside his house to peacefully protest were attacked by various armed armed services um, to make them move so that he could have his walk. And you go, why on earth would Donald Trump want to go for a walk with a Bible in his hand? Now, the answer lies within a very particular type of religious theology. Now, no one accuses Donald Trump of subtlety. When the US president raised the Bible overhead, as he did just this week before, at St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., around the corner from his place, the sign was unmistakable. It was an appeal to his white evangelical base for loyalty as protests and riots roared across America. I'm reading now from an article written by Matthew Teague, who's writing from Alabama, um, which is reasonably close to D.C., not very, um, but he's writing for The Guardian, and he wrote this on Thursday, just gone. He said, but many of Trump's evangelical supporters, far from Washington political stage, saw the move as a victory in a world rife with evil, and this was his intention. Now, I'm quoting now from a man called Benjamin Horboy. He's 37 years old. And he's from Alabama, and he says his whole family were flabbergasted by this walk. The family gathered, actually, I wasn't, sorry, it wasn't Alabama, it was Florida, in Tallahassee, Florida, to watch live as Trump walked from the White House to St. John's. And Floyd's mother, um, sorry, not Floyd, Benjamin's mother said, she shouted out, God give him strength. He's doing a Jericho walk. 
a Jericho walk in religious terms, and indeed some evangelical circles, refers to the biblical book of Joshua, where God commanded the Israelites to walk seven times around the opposing city of Jericho, whose walls came crumbling down. Now, Horboy and his family already supported Trump politically. He heads the local chapter of the pro-Trump Motorcycle Club and is campaigning for a seat in Florida State Senate. But when Trump lifted the Bible, Horboy and his family felt overcome by the Spirit of God. He said, my mother started crying. She comes from a Pentecostal background and she started speaking in tongues. I haven't heard her speak in tongues in years, he said. I thought, look at my president. He's establishing the Lord's kingdom in the world. He did feel conflicted with the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, and I quote uh, from the Bible, this is, um, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, said Mr. Horboy, that's a philosophical question, and I don't do philosophy. He said, after watching Trump's gesture, Horboy changed his Facebook profile photo to one of Trump, outside St. John's, with added rays of light emanating from the Bible. It was the coolest thing he said he could do. What more could he do? Wear blue jeans and ride in on a horse, he said. The catalyst for the protests, which were dispersed so he could do this walk, were the killing of 46-year-old George Floyd by Minneapolis police. Asked about that, Horboy said, there's a Bible verse that said we shouldn't talk about evil things. We can just say, that's evil, and then move on. He couldn't remember the exact verse, he said. So how did devotees like Horboy become such a potent force for the president? That would signal them, and the president indeed would signal to them over the television in his hour of need. One answer lies in their relationship with Trump. They have given him the fervent support of the ballot blocks, and in turn they have seen conservative takeover in America of the court system and on an assault on reproductive rights and indeed also assaults on LGDP, uh, sorry, LGBTQ plus rights. Their power and worldview is a culmination of trends that started decades ago according to John Fay, a history professor at the Messiah College and himself an evangelical Christian. It's rooted, he says, in fear. In the 1980s, several verses converged to alarm white Christians. A removal of official prayer and Bible readings from schools, an influx of immigrants from Asia and the Middle East, and the final deseg- desegregation of schools like Bob Jones University. I'll say that again the final desegregation of schools brought on this evangelical Christian movement. There was a very, very important case, a Supreme Court case, um, the Brown case. It was about the time of the King, um, Luther King's um, civic uh, times. It was, a, it was a very important time in the 60s. And they desegregated. The 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 80s he's talking about, not the 60s, the 80s. Yes, I know, but they did desegregate the the schools in that time. 
and the trouble is that they are now segregated again. Oh, yes, they are. With the charter school movement. It's it's a big, big worry. Indeed. Figures like Jerry Falwell and James Dobson started wielding political influence in a new way, followed today by a new generation that includes Franklin Graham and Dallas pastor Robert Jeffers and one of Trump's leading evangelical defenders. What seems to be missing is much of the coverage is that a group of protesters tried to burn the church to the ground 24 hours earlier, Jeffrey says. He says, yeah, they tried to burn the church, so that's why he made the walk. Jeffrey sees no conflict between Trump's behaviour and the Bible he held up on Monday morning. You mean, does he pretend to be perfectly pious? He says, no, no, he doesn't. Fay calls faith leaders like Jeffers court evangelicals. I call them courtier evangelicals. Trump has these people around him, Faye says. They're telling him, you need to get your evangelical base on board. People, once concerned with piety, Faye says, are crave and exercise in pure political power. And the Bible is no longer a spiritual weapon, but an earthly one. When Trump describes himself as a law and order president, and holds aloft a Bible, he conflates the law he will enforce and whose orders we will follow. In a short speech before the walk to St. John's, Trump said he would dominate the streets, and this is the kingdom of the world. I believe it's like Ephesians 6.10 through 19, poor boy said from his Florida house. He says, I believe this is a president who wears the full armour of God himself. But one of those verses, verse 12, says explicitly that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual enemies. Well, poor boy says, that doesn't matter. He's fearless. Now, I read that article out because that gives us an explanation as to what Trump is saying and doing. I didn't understand why he wanted those protesters dispersed so he could make that walk with the Bible in his hand. And reading the article makes it clear why he's doing it. However, and very rarely do we indulge in any form of theological debate on the Dodge Program, and I'm certainly not going to start now. But what I am going to do is quote, not from just these religious people, but from other religious leaders in the United States who find this action, because they understand the language, they understand the verses he's, he's, he's bringing to life with his actions in the Bible. And they have a very different reaction. And I'll be sharing that with you just after, after a short break. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5 p.m., and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. 
Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. What we've just heard is a particular type of white evangelical Christian. And I will say white because they are very often white in that context. What we have heard is what one particular type of Christian in America believes. But Christians in America come in so many different flavours and colours. Some are gelati and some are sorbet. Some are black, some are white, some are this, some are that. I can't even begin because then I really would have to start talking theology and I'm not going to do that here on the dog program. But I think it is reasonable and fair to say that many religious people around the United States find that Trump violently pushing protesters out of the way to stand in front of a church with a Bible was a reprehensible act. And the doctor, Reverend Dr. William Barber II, who's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, said very explicitly, he said, Trump's policies and actions are both religious hypocrisy and political insanity. His policies violate the theology of the church to care for the sick, the poor, and immigrants, the stranger. As Christians read in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says hypocrites have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, the right Reverend Bishop uh, Gene Robinson, the ninth bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New Hampshire, said, the Ten Commandments. The third one says, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. It's about using God's name for a profane purpose. That is precisely what the president did with a Bible in front of, not in, a church. Taking something dedicated to God and using it for a profane purpose. Did he pray? No. To engage in the misuse of the Bible and the church would be bad enough. But it's worse that peaceful demonstrators were brutally treated and pushed aside so that he could accomplish it. The Archbishop Bolton Jeffrey says, I find it baffling and reprehensible that any Catholic facility would allow it to be so misused. The Rabbi Jonah Presner says, POTUS, using a house of worship to shut down the voices of people of colour, is an affront to the people of faith. The Reverend James Martin, a Jesuit priest and author, says, let me be clear, this is revolting. The Bible is not a prop. A church is not a photo op. Religion is not a political tool, and God is not a plaything. <laughs> Stan J. Zarowski, the director of Lexington Interfaith Encounters Group, says, it certainly appears that a man who has little regard for this sacred text is using it simply as a prop. And Rabbi Jack Malloyne says, seeing President Trump stand in front of St. John's Episcopal Church while holding a Bible in response to a call for racial justice, right after using military force to clear peaceful protesters out of the area, is one of the most flagrant misuses of religion I have ever seen. This only underscores the President's complete lack of compassion for black Americans and the lethal consequences, lethal consequences of racism. And the Reverend George C. Gilbert Jr. from the Holy Trinity United Baptist Church. Yeah, the United Baptist Church says, and, Mr. President, I know you stood right there and held the Bible in your hand, but it is clear you don't have the Bible in your heart. I must warn you, Mr. President, that the Bible you held upside down in your tiny hands 
teaches us that God is always on the side of the oppressed. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so I think that gives you lots of different sides of what religious people think of what he's doing. From the white evangelical Christian Trump supporters, they are not the only Christians involved in this. And I think it's important that we understand that because it plays out in their education system, which is why I want to tell you one thing just before we go. I was over there in the United States a few years ago and I met a man, a nice man. We were in Baltimore and we were having a chat. He was a professional man. He was a curator in a museum in Boston, the Boston um, University's museum. He was a curator of that. He was an educated man and he was a black man and he was a kind man and he was a thoughtful man and we got on like a house on fire and he said, I originally am from South Carolina, but I live in Boston. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So do you like Boston? Oh, I love Boston. Boston's great. And we talked about Boston for a while. And I thought, well, what about South Carolina? Is it any different to where it is you grew up? Me, being an Australian, knowing that, you know, if you're a Tasmanian and you're a South Australian, that they're different, you know what I mean? And it's like maybe in the United States, if you come from different states, you're different. And he said, oh, yes, it's very different. And I said, but the weather down there seems quite nice. Oh, the weather's beautiful. The country is green and Boston is a big city and it's rough and it's fast and it's tough. And down in South Carolina, the pace is far more leisurely and languid and the weather is kinder, except for the tornadoes that come in from time to time. And I said, said, oh, you're a family man. He said, yes, yes, I've I've got a partner and two children. I said, have you ever thought about going back to South Carolina? And he got this look in his eyes and he went, no. And me being a naive Australian, I went, why not? He said, oh, no, 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 no. These days, and this is two years ago, he said, these days, it's resegregated. I'm a black man. And for a black man to go and live in South Carolina is almost tantamount to suicide. For a black man to return from Boston to South Carolina will mean that my children will go into a school that only has other black children in it. Whereas in Boston, my child goes to a school, a state school, with kids from just the local area, black, white, Hispanic, doesn't really matter. This is Boston. It's a big city. South Carolina, oh, no. I'd have to live in a black neighbourhood, send my kids to a black school and buy things from black shops because down in South Carolina, it's all come back. I won't even visit my mother who still lives there because I am too afraid because I am black and I am young and I am a professional. And they don't like that sort of thing down there because they don't like uppity blacks. This was in 2016. This isn't a recording from some documentary in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. No, this is a couple of years ago, having a really nice flat white on the Baltimore docks. And that is why we're talking about it here, because it's about the schools. You've been listening to the Dogs Program, the Defence of Government Schools, both here and around the world. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, it's www.adogs.info or indeed 3cr.org.au. You can actually now call and contact the station, but only through limited hours. Check their website before you do so. But until then, from here, from Dale, myself and Jean at the Dogs Program, it's bye for now.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.